since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is the Big Spot. And we're here to discuss Troilus and Cressida. Yes, not of, Cressida and Troilus, no. but Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. One of the, what were you going to say, Lindsay? The, well, the lesser the, known plays? I was gonna, <laughs> no, I was going to call it a problem play. It's probably, yeah. is it, it's the first problem play, really, that we've discussed? Yeah. I mean, there are some that, that we talked about earlier that are um, certainly lesser known plays, which is going to be the topic of our next episode. But um, in terms of plays that don't really fit neatly into any one category and that are not as frequently produced for reasons that have nothing to do with the play well it has to do with the play (laughs) itself it's the structure of the play that makes it hard to produce it's not like it's well and the subject matter and the dialogue there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with this yeah there are it's problematic not just in the uh structural definition way but also in a lot of other ways plot analysis and structure everything oh Lindsay, you've said the magic word plot uh structure let's 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 can i tell you something last night when i was uh couldn't sleep i was i was excited to go to work today and i was really i could not sleep last night um and weird it it, no it's not weird when you love your job aiden apparently um i i was thinking in my head how am i going to do the the synopsis of this play and i got it down to like 10 seconds i don't think i'm gonna do 10 seconds no you're obviously gonna fail that but that's okay it's worth a shot so you're ready to try though at least i'm i'm ready to try Lindsay, on your mark get set Go. All right. So the Trojan War has been waging for seven years. Um, there's a bit of a stalemate. They're not doing much. On the Trojan side, we've got Troilus and Cressida who have decided to fall in love with each other. On the Greek side, you've got Achilles who is whining in his tent and won't fight. So his Grecian uh, commanders are deciding to push him onto the battlefield. These two stories intersect when Cressida is traded to the Greeks in exchange for a Trojan prisoner. And it ends horribly and sadly for pretty much everyone Lindsay, that was amazing i know that was that was but basically you, perfect you really have to boil it down to those <laughs> those basic stories yeah. because really it feels like it's two plays it feels like it's it feels like there's a many... romance uh... like like the Troilus and cressida is like a, a more mature version of a more mature and very much less romantic version of romeo and juliet sure. and then you have this battlefield ego play going on with Achilles and Ulysses and all of these um, Greek characters and those two plays it's like he tried to marry them together and and have this this uh, this story come together um, by I mean it's it's how the story goes but it's they don't feel I think that's part of what makes it problematic is that they don't fit together nicely I've seen it yeah. done better <laughs> well I mean yeah to be fair it's 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 a, it's a strange, uh, you're right. I mean, in a sense, those are the two plays, but there's also the play of Paris and Hector and Helen 
that's also being played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that, not really part. That's that's like a, a scene. No, but it's it's a major component. It's like two or three scenes, first yeah, of all. Yeah, not really. And then I don't know. Achilles being, you know, manhandled is one half of the the, the Grecian, Greek. yeah, side as well. There's also the whole Ulysses just, you know, trying to run things and Menelaus. That, that's all part of and it. Agamemnon. You're 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 breaking it down. See, this is the this is what I've noticed is the problem for you, Aiden, is that you <laughs> you tend to look at the play in much smaller, discrete chunks instead of seeing the big picture. No, I've I've seen the big picture, yeah, and you're you're ignoring you significant parts of the big picture. No. But anyways, let's ignore the big picture right now and talk about the uh, context around the play. So it was it was likely written around 1601, maybe 1602, sure. somewhere in there. Uh, shortly after Hamlet is the general consensus. And there was a quarto publication. In fact, there were two of them. And this is a point of consternation for understanding the history of the play because one of the front pages of the quarto says, this play was never performed. And the other one says, this one was recently performed by hmm. the King's Men. <laughs> so which one was it? Uh, nobody really knows. There's no real other definitive proof one way or the other. Um, and then the folio printing, when it came to that, was even more confusing because the very first run of the folio actually didn't have uh, Trojan Cressida listed in the table of contents. Right. And so only parts of the pages that it's on were actually printed in that first version. Uh, it was a mistake, basically. <laughs> and then in this, the subsequent ones, it was it was kind of bundled off to the side and it was wherever they were, in between the tragedies and the histories, I think, uh, was wherever they could kind of find space for this play huh. that didn't fit anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and it really does not fit with anything that we've read up to this point, no. Lindsay. Uh, if you've been following along with us, it feels nothing like any of the other plays, uh, and yet it feels very much in keeping with where sh- how Shakespeare seems to be morphing and shifting and being able to do yeah. different things on stage. It's definitely than his language, some of the some beautiful language. I mean, yep. it's definitely Shakespearean in that sense. But in terms of how it relates to the other plays in the collected works, definitely doesn't fit anywhere. No, which is what makes it. A problem play. One of the things that makes it a problem play. Um, And there, just a a small uh, side note on the quarto and folio uh, versions. Uh, There was the folio seems to simplify a little bit of the quarto, uh, and but at the same time, it also adds in a little bit of extra stuff. There's a bunch of small little uh, changes between the two. And that means that the uh, much smarter Shakespeare scholars than us have not yet been able to figure out, like, is there a definitive text? There really isn't. So a lot of texts will either combine all of them or just go with one and say that's good enough. Yeah, like the Folger version that we read is kind of takes everything. Yeah. Puts it all together. Yeah, and it just puts brackets around the things that are unique to each. And so you're reading and half the stuff is in brackets because it's just random stuff here and there. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of the history of the play. in terms of structure, though, Lindsay, yeah, we've talked about this a lot already. It's, yeah, already. We, we, can end the, we can end the episode right here. This is a problematic structure. But it, it really <laughs> does not fit in the tragedy con, uh, tragedy category no. whatsoever. No. Um, Troilus and Cresta both survive at the end, so they're not the titular dead characters, a la Macbeth and Hamlet. Right. Um, there's definitely no comedy here. Yeah, There's it doesn't no marriage. end in a wedding. I suppose it ends in a... Well, no, it doesn't end in a, even a coupling. Unless you count Cressida and Diomedes, uh, yeah, Diomedes, but it's uh, that's not really the point of yeah. that that thing. It's not a history play in the sense mm. that it tells a true story of anything. I mean, it's a retelling of an ancient uh, mythological kind of story. Yeah. 
did the Tro- the Trojan War actually happen? Yeah, they proved I mean, that this, since. This isn't yes. like a, this was well before they knew that was real. Sure, that was only well, in the twentieth century. But, but yeah, but like you know, yeah. But and sorry, uh, jumping back a little bit, I can't believe I forgot to mention this, Lindsay. But there was a uh, uh, textual impetus for Shakespeare's yes. uh, production. Uh, Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer, had written Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. Uh, 300 years earlier or so, well, 200 and uh, some, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's a very long, in fact, it's uh, Chaucer's longest completed yeah. piece. Uh, yeah. Some of the Canterbury Tales, if you look at them as individual chunks, they might be about as long, but Troilus and Crusader was actually completed. Uh, it's a full-length epic poem mm-hmm. about this coupling that mm-hmm. more or less kind of uh, matches Shakespeare's yeah. thing. It's a lot less jaded. It's a little more romantic. It's yeah. a little more sad and uh, sympathetic towards its characters, mm-hmm. especially the two main ones. Um, and Chaucer actually had taken his from Boccaccio, an Italian poet, right. uh, medieval poet as well, um, who had in turn taken it from oral histories and, and what have you. So I think Going there is actually... All the way back to the Iliad. All the way back to the <laughs> Iliad and, and Virgil and, and what have you. So it's... it Yeah, it does it's have a lot of... Yeah, so it's, it's one of those plays that has... Um, uh, a long textual literary history, I guess. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what Shakespeare does with it, it's it's unlike the other plays that he borrows from, like Romeo and Juliet, which had, again, a, 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 an established literary history. Yeah. And he he takes that story, and I, I do remember reading parts of Troilus and Cressida when we took uh, that... Chaucer class, yeah. Yeah, the Middle English class in university. And um, it's... Yeah, you're right. It's it's like it's the same story, but but sh- what Shakespeare tries to do with it is, I don't know. I I think it's I think it's an interesting experiment, but it feels like an experiment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it feels like he. Well, in a, in some ways, it's the inversion of Romeo and Juliet because yeah. Romeo and Juliet was this kind of morality tale about teen love and everything and he turned it into the greatest love story of all, of all time kind of yeah. thing i mean he left in a lot of the ironies and stuff that that make it uh you know a warning about young love as well sure. but he did you know dive head first into like no these are young people in love yeah, let's yeah. explore that and let's make it fun and romantic yeah. and and what what have you uh this, this is this is the opposite. This is like, well, there's this great love story about these two uh, lovers who are torn apart by fate, yeah. and he turns it into a mercenary, uh, mercantilist, uh, capitalist, very capitalist, cynical, yeah, relationship. Ironic. The, the irony are is so many so many levels deep in this play. <laughs> there are literally everything uh, in this play is centered around the ironic distancing that Shakespeare seems to do, especially with his characters um, who are really not there in a singular sense. There's uh, the the great essay that was in uh, the Folger edition, which we'll link to, of course, um, described as there's no one single, there's no one version of any of the characters in this play. Everybody is uh, untrue and Mm -hmm. changing and Mm -hmm. fickle. Uh, Ulysses, Achilles, Troilus, Cressida, even Pandarus to an extent, Mm -hmm. who's basically just a pimp the whole play. Uh, Even he has kind of swings of wanting to see both characters happy, only caring about Troilus, only caring about himself. Uh, There's... There's a whole swing of, of emotions in all of these character arcs. and They do it because it's it's the way that you get what you want. And that's yeah. what makes it very, um, it's a self-centered play. It's a very, I, I would argue it's a very modern play in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's a very um, play about me. It's, it's me first, right? Um, 
you have a note here that it's it's also um, it's confusing to know who the main character is, and I think that was the hardest part for me to get into this play was because you think going into it that Troilus and Cressida are going to be the main characters, and and they certainly do get a lot of screen time, and and I think they get well, Troilus the does. exception, yeah, well, Cressida he's short, a little less, yeah, but um, the with the exception of Ulysses. And some of what Pandarus says, I think, is is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Troilus and Cressida do get the bulk of the most beautiful Cressida, especially when mm-hmm. she does speak, is very eloquent and beautifully um, well spoken. Yeah, and funny. Too. Yeah, She's and very, very funny. funny yeah. yeah. So, but they are the main characters. I think you you've said potentially Troilus is the main character. Yeah. He's probably the closest thing we have to a main character, but Ulysses certainly seems to have a moral authority to him, and mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, Thersites, Thersites the, the, the has fool the fool has like, has a, a place to a, a role to play. Yeah. I mean, it's it's there's so much going on that it's hard to find. There's no one character that brings you fully into the play the way that um, Hamlet does or the way that um, Macbeth does, yeah. which are comparably uh, chronologically. At or even Romeo played. and Juliet. Sure. Obviously, yeah. Like it, it, like it's it's hard to find a through line into the play because there's no one character, which isn't a bad thing. But be, that fracturing, I think, goes along with the idea that the characters don't have um, their own uh, central purpose. Maybe with the one exception of Cassandra, but there's yeah. there's they flip flop all the time. Yeah. And that is it's it's. Uh, it's a little chaotic, right? Yeah. The characters themselves are chaotic, and so our entry into the play is chaotic, and the play itself is chaotic all as a result. And I, having read the plays both immediately before and after this chronologically, um, Shakespeare knows better. So yeah. I oh, have yeah. to wonder if this is done on purpose. I, I think it has to be. And I think uh, the note I've got in here that kind of sets it all up in my mind is mm-hmm. that that central it is literally the center of the play is the declarations of love between mm-hmm. Troilus and Cresta mm-hmm. and Pandarus stepping in and saying well let everybody be called Panders if yes. they're if they're go-betweens you know the this true as Troilus as false as Cressid um that scene is very beautiful uh lovely writing uh even Pandarus's stuff is actually pretty pretty yeah. touching in a way um but it's so steeped in irony because you as the audience know that this is the truest Troilus and falsest Cressid and a pander is based on panderous. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, you know this going in. Yeah. And uh, in fact, there was one uh, note that Shakespeare might have actually uh, written and had this performed just for uh, the lawyers, like a lawyers association or something like that. So if in which case they... The Inns of Court or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And they they would be very well read in this stuff. They would know all of this uh, detail. So if you have something like that in mind, uh, it, it really kind of lessens the beauty and enhances the irony of uh, of these uh, declarations. I wouldn't say it lessens the beauty, but it certainly it explains some of the irony maybe that 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 if you're if you consider the audience. So if mm-hmm. you consider that Troilus and Cressida was not a play written for the groundlings. It yeah. was not a play yeah. written for um to be performed at the Globe, which is a as a fine um I might even agree with that that as- assessment that it's um that it was performed or written specifically for the Inns of Court, um, then 
then a lot of the stuff that that makes it a problem play suddenly makes sense because we're used to looking at plays as as having those easy through lines and the funny characters and the body humor and um and all of that stuff that's going to appeal to the widest array of people Mm. um if this is a play that's written for the smartest five percent of the english population I mean that that's that yeah. explains a lot of what's going on here and yeah. explains probably why it's not widely performed. I don't we could not find another version of this other than the BBC production which literally exists because the BBC are are completists. Oh yeah, really. although it was actually a a pretty well done version all things yeah, considered. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um what's his name was Anton Lesser. Anton Lesser as Troilus was yeah. quite good. Uh yeah. The actress who played Cressida was also pretty good, I yeah. thought. Um, we can get to Cressida in a, in a moment. I think she's an interesting character worthy of discussion on our own. But yeah, I, I agree, Lindsay. I think if if you kind of take that understanding of how the play was created, it makes a lot more sense. I think that also makes it hold up in a, in a very unique way. It yeah, is, definitely. It feels like a postmodern play. Uh, oh, hugely. In the sense that there is no... Um, there's no moral to this, really. There's no... No. There's no... Uh, lesson or it's even hard to pin down like like if you had to give this as a as a to a high school student and say here write a theme statement for this it would be hard because there's there's not really an easy way to to wrap everything up in one coherent cogent message because and it's because the characters are not consistent themselves and maybe that's it (laughs) well yeah i mean i think that's i think that's a lot of it it's just there is there's so many levels of irony that that you don't usually get inside of uh, a Shakespearean yeah. play and it really kind of comes across because of that as mm-hmm. as something that feels very foreign compared to everything else of his that we've read so far yeah <laughs> all, all I have is eat me out of house and home so the the themes I mean having said that there are no there it's hard to write a theme statement um there certainly are a lot of themes yeah, maybe, I think Aiden you, you struggle <laughs> to come up with a, a decent list of of themes that maybe that's not the right yeah it's maybe it's like uh motifs or, or sure. ideas that are yeah. talked about in in parts of the play and i think ideas is actually maybe a better way of looking at it because like all of these things connect with all the other things that we'll discuss in this themes kind of <laughs> section mm-hmm. uh in a way that they they again they build off and uh riff off the irony of each other so i have the first one down as an example i have quote unquote truth and i've actually put it in quotes because um it in this context means uh, sexual fidelity and truthfulness in that way. Uh, Troilus wants Cresta to be true. That's that's okay. all he cares about for yeah. her. Um, but that connects with all sorts of things about ownership and value, and uh, it connects with honor in terms of uh, you know women can only have this value if a man can own them, which is something that comes across sure. in Helen, especially is obviously the most well, common and, thing. And Cressida's. Um, first big speech I guess yes exactly yeah yeah Yeah. so um so in terms of like truth uh it's is in itself not really just about chastity it's about um all these other things yeah all these other connecting things and and the fact that the within the play there are no true characters there are no characters who again because they're so yeah because they're so changing and uh fickle I guess you could say none of them stay true to any of their previous statements except for Cassandra yeah, Cassandra, again, yes, because her role is simply to say, like, everyone's going to die. Don't go out there, Hector. Everyone's going to die. Yeah, which is, will burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and again, it's irony because we know she's right and, yeah. and what have you. But, uh, yeah, the, otherwise, none of the characters stick to their 
to their beliefs at any point in time. No, and and they like I said they 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 kind of flip flop based on the needs of the audience in front of them. So um, yeah. Cressida is is a, gr- a great example because when she's talking to her uncle Pandora, she's like um, she does she has no interest really in Troilus. She kind of puts him off. She's pretending to be uninterested when she's by herself she says she's infatuated with him she loves him she's loved him for a long time um uh ulysses uh his first speech comes out talking about order and and the order of the universe which is another theme we're going to talk about right away but um and how everybody needs to have their place in the order and then in the like the next scene that he comes in on he's he's manipulating people machiavelli style right and and just um messing with the way that with the order with the order of things (laughs) right so there's no there's no character that that you're right that sticks to one like they they have no moral compass they just go where the wind takes them and it's a very you said the word mercenary that's a, a perfect word for it that that that's a very capitalistic thing, isn't it? To be like, well, my value in this situation is if I act in this way or say this thing, then I will be able to get what I want. Oh, but in this situation, I have to do this and I have to say this and then I'll get what I want. It's very cynical in that sense. And I think that yeah. that plays into um, the It's almost like truth. <laughs> it's an ideal people talk about. Yes. In an abstract sense. But they, they never, never reach it. it. Yeah. They, they can't even come close to that. So yeah. it's almost, in that sense, ironic because it's detached from the play. Mm-hmm. There is no truth in this play. Yeah. It's just, with the exception of Cassandra, which we could have included her more in our mental illness episode, I think, just because of how she's portrayed in yeah, this I play. But, um, yeah, it's, it's like a totally separate thing, the truth aspect of it. Yeah, and I think... Uh, the best example of that is actually Hector in the discussion of, are we going to keep Helen? Right. And he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he gives all these arguments for why they should give her back. And he's like, no, nah, we'll keep her. Yeah. Like, it like just changes yeah. his mind entirely. On a dime. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous. The fact that the, this happens so quickly. And, and sometimes that can be like, when I'm reading the play, I'm like, wait, why did he change his mind? And yeah. I go back and he has like two lines of explanation. And it's basically like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, she's honor itself. And it's like, well, that was what Paris was saying. And that yeah. was what Troy was saying. Why were you arguing with them? Yeah. You agreed with this. It's, it's, yeah, it, it is literally that, that none of these characters can, can stick to anything. Um, and that means that the whole idea of uh, sexual chastity as well is just thrown out the window with everything else. Yeah. Like it's, it's a ridiculous idea to uphold, especially in wartime. Uh, and yet Shakespeare is kind of hinting that his audience would expect it. Well, at the oh, same yeah. time saying like, well, but, it's not but we know happen. it's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Like, like that's the irony of it. It's mm-hmm. saying, here's what, what should be happening, setting you up for these expectations. Because if you're a smart person and you've watched a play or two, you're going to know that um, Achilles is going to do this and Hector is going to do that and Cressida is going to do this. But obviously those expectations are subverted because... And and he's playing with you, right? Yeah, because you yeah. know this story. This is not a, a wholly brand new story, right? Yeah. He's talking about a story that's 2,000 years old. Well, maybe not quite at yeah, that point. not at that point, but yeah. But it's a millennia old, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, yeah, it's it's just incredibly ironic. That's the only word I can yeah, use to describe it. Yeah, it really is. And I think um, 
you know, one of the questions I had was why is he so, why is Trellis so obsessed with truth when in this ridiculous circumstance where he's not even going to be able to be why true to her? Why is truth at all yeah. so central? Yeah. And I don't I, know if there's an answer to no, that. No, neither do I. I think it's, I think it is literally just to raise the question of like, yeah, of truth as an unattain, unobtainable yeah. uh, virtue, I guess, in this case, where Shakespeare's like, yeah, truth, it would be great. <laughs> Good luck with that here. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk about value and order uh, mm-hmm. as it relates to um, Ulysses. I think the, the the discussion between Hector and, and Ulysses, respectively, um, that's where the the question of the structure of society kind of comes up. Um, Ulysses talks about how the the reason that they're not able to defeat the Trojans is not because they're stronger; it's because we're weaker because we haven't. We've up- upended our social order. Achilles should not be holding himself up in his tent with his boy toy, his Patroclus or Patroclus. 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 I always say Patroclus. I'm sure I'm wrong. But. Yeah, but with his with his lover mm-hmm. um, refusing to fight, it's it goes against the order of things, and this is why we're it's our weakness that's causing us to to be losing this battle seven years into it. Um, uh, Hector with the the question of Helen's value and mm-hmm. and and all of that um it it's it's fascinating to me because we know at this time in in English history there was a huge power shift happening mm-hmm. it, it's you know post renaissance or kind of the start of the renaissance really for England anyway yeah, yeah. but it's a it's a, a burgeoning mercantilist capitalist society there's a burgeoning middle class that's coming out with a lot of power and a lot of influence um this would have been kind of frightening and i think the puritans that come out in the in the middle part of that century are a reaction to that too right a, yeah. a, a desire to go back to the way things were a, a ulysses type yes um yes. call back to order yeah and uh and so there, there's some anxiety here that shakespeare is addressing in a way yeah and and he's using these ancient characters uh from classical legend mm-hmm. in order to um, highlight very modern concerns, contemporary concerns for his, which is not unusual. We've seen that many times already in Shakespeare, but um, it's a it's Elizabethan anxieties about order. The the great chain of being basically described yeah verbatim verbatim by, by Ulysses. By Ulysses. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's just it's it's fascinating. It's like a little slice of of modern elizabethan life that's being displayed to us in this classical story and then it's completely undercut through everything else that happens right ironically exactly (laughs) and 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 that's that's the really interesting part is that some of these questions he doesn't answer at all like ulysses has his stock answer for how does order work but Mm -hmm. when it comes to value and how do you how are things valued especially how are people valued yeah especially women uh it's it, there's not really as clear an answer it's it's still up for debate in a, in a sense well and that's because value things had no value anymore either <laughs> the essay the folger essay talked about that directly yeah. that that it used to be that there was a gold standard and this is what things were worth but all of a sudden you're trading on an international market and the value of currency is changing day to day so the thing that you that has this much value x value today is is x minus five value tomorrow and then it's x plus 10 value the day after that so you have no idea what your value is worth so of course you're going to use things as bargaining chips in order to get the most money the most bang for your buck right Mm -hmm. so 
yeah, of course Cressida is going to withhold her affections for Troilus until the very last moment because her value is determined by her uh, ungettability, <laughs> right? That's one way of putting and, it. And she knows that. And she knows that her value is is going to change the minute she says, I love you. So that is, it's commodifying romance. It's commodifying mm-hmm personal relationships, interpersonal relationships. It's turning every kind of human interaction into a commodity that can be traded the same way that coins and valuable goods can be traded on yeah. a world market. Yeah, and, and we this has come up previously. Like Shakespeare's kind of explored this. With, sure. I think it was Comedy of Errors and then obviously Merchant of Venice with mm-hmm. the you know uh, pound of flesh having a specific value as well. Yeah. Um, but here, again, it's it's... It's not answering those things, and it doesn't take a moral stance against it no. either. It, it's it's opening the door to those questions and just leaving it wide open, swinging. And yeah. uh, Cressida, I think Cressida's path um, along the sexual value chain. God, mm-hmm. that's that's a that, terrible, that's a terrible, sentence. terrible yes, sentence I just said. <laughs> uh, but her her experience of going from like um, being desired and wanted by Troilus, um, withholding and then giving in and then immediately being traded to the other side and, and then having her value completely decimated. Yeah. And she basically has to sell to the first bidder who comes by because she's in this terrible situation where she has no protection. Uh, it's really interesting. just as a side note, uh, I read both the Chaucer and Boccaccio ones because, again, Lindsay, I have to mention, I did write the screenplay for this play as well. Um, and, in both Chaucer and I believe in Boccaccio as well, there, there's a lot more of um, getting into Cressa's mind after she's been traded into the yeah. Grecian camp. Uh, and it's it's a little bit more aware of like, she doesn't have any protection. Her father's old and can't take care of her. So Here, she has to look out for herself. She has to look out for herself yeah. and she has so to find someone. So it makes sense that she's going to give herself to Diomedes because yes. that's the only way she's going to survive this. But, but in Shakespeare's play, that's not there at all. Mm-hmm. It's really just like she's almost happy to hand herself over well, and to an it's extent because but she because knows her value exactly. she knows that she is a commodity that's been traded on the market and diomedes is willing to walk away which is yeah. you know it's like <laughs> this is this metaphor is getting worse all the time but it's like a car dealership if you're willing to walk away from yeah. the, the sale they'll they're more inclined to one lower yeah. the price you know yeah. if you have that threat all the time and he has it over her yeah she has to kind of make do with what she's being offered so yeah. um it is it is this this path of watching her go down in value, basically. Yeah. It starts off, she's the most valued thing in, in Troy. She's GameStop on <laughs> Wednesday, January 16th yeah. or 20, whatever and now it was. It's GameStop and then GameStop today. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and it's 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 a really terrifying way of looking at it, but yeah. it, this is what Shakespeare is staring in the face in his time period. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, yeah, this, this is what's this happening. This is what it's like. And that, I think, even further is more interesting if you consider that this play could have been written for lawyers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that this is the kind <laughs> of smart shit that Shakespeare's putting in front of the smartest people in his orbit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And saying, yeah, look at this. Let's, and, and let's a, leave these questions on the table. And there's not a legal on it. thing here. Like, no, no, no. Not like, at all. Just to jump on the, the anti-Stratfordians. But this is one of his smartest plays and there's no legal questioning no. or anything like that. It's it's purely philosophical questions raised by the story itself yeah. that he's structured in such a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really... Yeah, value and its connection with order. And again, back to truth, like truth seems to be like the the most invaluable of commodities and yet nobody in the play can get it. No. Um, and except for 
kind of Troilus is kind of set up well, as being traithful to the end. Do you yeah. say traithful? Traithful. I yeah, did say traithful, but so I was hoping you wouldn't catch that. Faithful as Troilus, he's traithful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but Cressida, I think, is an... Sorry, not Cressida. Cassandra is an interesting one because... Um, yeah. She's always right. She al- She's always right. <laughs> she has zero value. Yeah. Like, yeah. they don't listen to her. They lock yeah. her up. In the BBC production, <laughs> there's just a set piece. It's like a, it's like a jail. Yeah, just ready just for Cassandra. Just right there. It's just like, like, get uh, back in your hole. Yeah. Like, you're you're talking too much. You're... you're you're being too truthful it's, it's so get true. in the hole yeah and that that also is ironic yeah. that the most the most truthful <laughs> god we can't talking talk is hard the most truthful character is the one treated the worst yeah and another kind of side effect of that or it's not side effect another instance of that is mm-hmm. is the king's like priam mm-hmm. is has no say over anything and but he's it, ancient and, so well and, yeah, of course the, he has no value because well, he's old well no but he's he's the most val- he owns all of troy so it's I it's guess, again like yeah. this these like multiple competing avenues of value and ownership yeah. uh that are just crisscrossing in all sorts of haphazard ways and, and you get this messed up play as a result yeah. <laughs> um love is another theme i guess that we could talk about uh it's it's again it's very closely tied with um with truth in in the sense that love is um the carrier i guess for truth in a way that you can be true to somebody by by giving them your love and and holding that love above all else i guess um but it also matches up with value because who you love and how you love and how deeply you love i suppose are all tied up with your value as a human being and you can see that in troilus and cressida's relationship and the the highest height of of the the language between the two of them but also the highest height of their their brief relationship Mm -hmm. is when they are the only time really that they talk to one another yeah aside from the morning after which is an awkward scene for lots of reasons again pandas fuck (laughs) (laughs) but um that's that's the highest point of their love is when they have the most value to each other um you can contrast that with um achilles and patroclus Patroclus, who also have a deep and abiding love it's it's undeniable that they are lovers and nobody shies away from that in the play no i mean thersites admonishes them for it as a a deviation but at the same time yeah the play does hold them up as being the only people who are happy with each other when they're in love yeah and and (laughs) that's um their but their value to one another they it's not a relationship that is codified in any way or could ever be codified in any way if you look at it from from a, an Elizabethan standpoint, yes, yes, yeah. If you if you're talking about it from an ancient Greek standpoint, yes, there Makes was value to yeah. Yeah. to male lovers, especially warriors on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. But um, but there, it's almost it's almost like Achilles and Patroclus are removed from the stock market in a way. Yeah, like they they yeah. don't have like their the value of their relationship doesn't change based on anything else. Yeah, like like. It, it is allowed to exist on its own terms, right? Yeah. Probably because it's a, it's a quote-unquote deviant relationship. Yeah. But in a way, that that deviation... Takes it out of the marketplace. It. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and yeah. leaves it up as... We remarked on that when we were watching. It's like, this is... That they they have the best... They have the healthiest relationship... Yeah, by far. ...of anyone in the, yeah. in the story. So... 
and it, interesting. Yeah, it, it is, is interesting. And, and it's and it's contrasted. I think maybe well, Troyes and Cressida obviously are a big contrast because yeah. they start off, quote unquote, in love, um, wound up hating each other basically. Uh, but there's also I think Helen and Paris is a, is. Well, oh, yeah. Helen's whole thing is is yeah. very interesting because again, she's the most valued object in the world the because face she's that launched launched a thousand ships. If you more than a thousand, well, in Shakespeare's version, <laughs> yes, exactly. But but even that in itself is dehumanizing. It's yeah. just her face yeah. that launched yeah. the thousand exactly. ships, really, exactly. right? Um, but yeah, and then you have her and uh, Menelaus as the ultimate cuckold. Like he, yeah. his whole reason for existing in this play is literally to be the yeah. butt of cuckold jokes. Yeah, um, pricked and, by. Paris's horn, <laughs> yes. or, or he Paris is pricked by Menelaus. Yeah, horn? there's remember. there's horn pricking going on. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then and then there's Paris and, and Helen, which you get one brief scene of where they're just like at least in the BBC production, I think it's it kind is. of in the text yeah. too yeah. as well. But they're just like all over each other. They're just completely. Yeah, she's she's filled. portrayed as almost like like a bimbo. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but but also like like a bit of a slut yeah like that's yeah. that's oh, yeah. how she's yeah. portrayed and and that's not the image that you come away with when you read homer the, when you or read something homer. like that no. yeah she was they this... had this deep abiding love that was you know kind yeah, yeah, of, yeah but yeah. no she's just a, a floozy yeah right yeah and that again another ironic twist that this this great woman who we hear about she's talked about but she doesn't speak for a while and when she does it doesn't say much but <laughs> but when she's talked about it's it's she is this she is helen yeah but when you hear her it's like oh she's she's helen. the lady at helen the down end the street of the bar you know. yeah yeah, right. Yeah. Who's there every Tuesday night and <laughs> has too many tequilas and yeah. right? So So yeah, so again, it's it's even this uh storied love of Helen and Paris willing to start a war over them. Yeah. Um is reduced. Is yeah, yeah it's, reduced it's, to just like, yeah, they're horny for each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's it. Like there there's nothing more to it. Shakespeare doesn't want to give us any of that love story. And so that that in that implication of one of the greatest loves of all times is completely hollow filters down throughout the text, except yep. for again, Patroclus and Achilles. Yeah. So, I mean, love is a many splendored thing. <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's something that Shakespeare has come back to. It's a, it's a constantly renewing wellspring for him. Mm-hmm. And yet in this play, love does not seem to be, um, all you need. <laughs> Wow, you're really just tying it all together. I, I'm trying. Lindsay, yeah. um, it's not. It's not a force for good. It doesn't solve any problems. No. It's not the answer to any questions. No. It's just one more thing that can be bartered mm-hmm. or traded, or that can determine the value of something that is bartered or traded. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a cynical way of looking at at romantic love. But again, it it makes sense. If you are Shakespeare writing this play for a bunch of undergrads or or recently barred lawyers. Well, I mean, I I mean, setting aside the lawyer thing, I mean, yeah. possibly yes, but even if it was even if it was never performed, mm. and it is literally just Shakespeare had a manuscript and he he wanted to write this play. This was I, his vanity project. Yeah, this was his little vanity yeah. project. That that Oh yeah, no, totally. That makes sense too. Yeah. And, it, and it does like this play would be hard to put on even today. I don't think you could really sell it as like Shakespeare's hidden postmodern masterpiece because it's not quite uh, postmodern enough. Maybe like there, it's a very yeah. linear story. Still, it doesn't play with structure quite as well um, as you might expect. But anyways, 
get putting all that aside, it's it's a very um, dissembling work, I would say. Yeah, it, it just It sets you up and knocks you down and knocks you back and then picks you up again and twirls you around and kicks you in the butt. Takes because... a whiskey drink, vodka drink, <laughs> lager drink. Wow. Chumbawamba. Indeed. This is a Chumbawamba play. Let's just... <laughs> Twirls and Cressida, the Chumbawamba play. You just sold me. I want to okay. see this production. Just put that on the playbill and I'll watch it. It's the Chumbawamba play. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst time, Lindsay. <laughs> Wait, is that a line from the song? No, but speaking of war, yeah, it was okay. the best of times. It was the worst times. <laughs> We're going all the way around to Dickens here. Uh, that's our next theme. Uh, the, the way war is discussed and, and set up and operates within the plays. Again, very, very fucking strange. Um, because we've seen a lot of really good war in Shakespeare. Henry V, yeah. he's he's very self-conscious about it. He's like, imagine the vasty fields of France yeah. on this wooden yeah. know. Like it's 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 self-conscious, but it's there. Um, we even see it better in uh, which of the Henry the Sixth was it Part One. Part one, where it was like, oh, yeah, back the and French forth. come yeah. in and then they run off and then the English come in and then they run off. Yeah. And it's like, you know, this play for, I mean, first of all, they talk about war. Yeah. Most of the play, it's a very talky play. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they talk a lot about war. There's a lot of, um, it, it seems to me that they're in kind of a truce mode. But I don't know if that's yeah, specifically I don't think so. said, but they act a lot like it. Yes. Like, well, you know, they're very friendly with each other. Totally. Like, like they come over to each other's camps. Well, the Tro- yeah. Trojans come over to the Greek camp. The Trojans. The Trojans. Sorry. The <laughs> Trojans come over to the Greek camp and they, they sup together and they exchange prisoners and it's all very courteous. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like they're at, e- at each other's throats. And the one time we do see, well, we see a couple of quote-unquote battles but they always end before any fighting happens well like yeah. hector and achilles hector meet. and ajax hector and ajax yeah. sorry meet yeah. but then they they decide yeah we're just shake hands and we're done with it yeah. right yeah the one time we do see a horrible actual battle it's when uh achilles turns the myrmidons myrmidians Mer- myrmidians yeah, i don't remember how it's pronounced but yeah uh loose on Hector and they hack him to death and then he well he's un- yeah. disrobed like yeah. unarmored he's unarmed yeah. he's not you know it's a very disgraceful thing that Achilles does which again kind of I mean it's it's how it happens in in the original text but it does seem I don't think it maybe does. not quite as much I'm but he sure does Achilles just kills Hector in a fight in the original um, and I think See, that's, that's even that's, in... that I should have done my research because <laughs> I was thinking about that last night too and I couldn't sleep I was like <laughs> when was the last time end? I read the Iliad do the... I know this for sure <laughs> he, did, he did drag him around by the tail of his horse I'm pretty yes. sure that that's in all of them but yes. I think even in Chaucer um, it was it was a, it was it a was fair a, fight it was more of a fair fight it was not like yeah, we're going to get you while your guard's down and we're going to have 10 guys stab you. Or, or in the BBC production, they take their rifle butts because BBC. Yes, and, and, well. they, and they just beat him to death. And like and the slow, like it takes yeah. like 10 seconds of beating to kill the guy. Yeah. It's it's a very kind of... It's a big it's, it's a choice. It's yeah. a choice for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, the, the point that it's a ridiculous kind of warfare that's being... Uh, that, well, basically that there is, first of all, there's no warfare for most of the play, four fifths of the play. And then the, in the fifth act, when there's a bunch of battle scenes, the one that stands out is this horribly brutal, um, realistic, like you're going to kill your yeah. arch enemy. If you have him cornered yeah. unarmed for some reason, you're going to kill him. It's, yeah. that's just how warfare is done. Yeah. Um, 
and it's it's like a slap in the face of all this nice jovial talking and back and forth well and, and even hector the, the, and ajax are cousins so they should never fight and yeah. all this stuff just goes completely out the window mm-hmm. um and again it's it's this the play cannot decide on one way to conduct warfare even yeah exactly and and still does the the whole ironic twist at the end where it goes against all um rules of engagement that battle battles would have been fought under um in order to underscore uh achilles untruthfulness his 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 dishonor i guess yeah um it's it's (laughs) it's strange to think about it that way but that's that's that seems to be what, well, like I don't I don't really know what Shakespeare is trying to say about war. Well, I have no idea what it is. I have something that will tie that one back to the previous one, which okay, is like it. the the point of this war was over love, really. At the end of the day, it oh, was it's yes. Paris and Helen's yes. love that starts the war, um, and then we have a, a play about another lo- set of lovers uh, broken apart by this war, mm-hmm. um, and you would think well. Yeah, the war is fought for for love for positive reasons, but neither love nor war uh, are consistent or truthful enough to um, hold that idea down right. in any way, shape, or form. It's it's all false and changing and variable, and it's up to the market forces. Yeah, of yeah. you know, Achilles doesn't want to fight Hector at all until uh, Patroclus is killed, and he's like, well. <laughs> There's two different ways you can look at it. Yeah. Uh, in the text, it uh, claims that Achilles is going crazy and he's, he just wants revenge right away. So that's why yeah. he goes out and kills uh, Patroclus. In the BBC production, they had Achilles like trimming his beard and talking very carefully about how he's going to kill Achilles or kill Hector, sorry. Um, he was not worried about, like he was not upset at all about yeah. Patroclus's death. It was, yeah. it was very strange, that production. I think right. generally the idea is, uh, Achilles reacts uh, when his love is finally yes. threatened. He goes out and declares real war. Yes. Um, That's the thing that drags him out of his tent. Yeah. Ironically, because it was the thing that kept him in his tent. Yeah, for the longest time. Yes. Yeah. And, but also, um, it, it, if that's true, and if that's the reading, and I think you're right, that that's the reading of, of Achilles' decision at the end mm-hmm. to wage war on Patroclus's behalf, yeah. it throws Troilus's true as Troilus into really sharp relief because he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't get revenge for he blames Cressida he he kind of is angry at Diomedes for yeah like he wants to he wants to get revenge but but he he doesn't doesn't. yeah and he he can't he's he's rendered completely impotent and at the end obviously the play ends with this um this kind of you know, Troy, Hector's been killed. The hope for Troy has has crumbled. Pandarus is dying of syphilis and is going to bequeath us all with his venereal disease yeah. when he dies. Um, and that's literally how the play ends. It's 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 incredibly cynical. And it's it's not the glory of war. This is not yeah. Henry V on, you know, St. <laughs> Crispin's Day. The exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. This is, this is a dishonorable thing mm-hmm. that is... Um, <laughs> ironically set into motion by the love of two men yeah achilles and patroclus yeah and and the vengeance that comes when one is killed yeah right it's 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 baffling it's it's what makes it so problematic you can't pigeonhole it but that might also be one of its strengths I would say so. I think it's. I think that's what drew me to the play all those years ago when I was like, "Yeah, yeah they should do a. They should do a film <laughs> of this because it is. It's just. It's very unsettling 
to watch these characters go through this progression. Um, and it feels like there's a message there of like uh, war, capitalism, and love are all stupid. Mm-hmm. Don't it's it's kind of a, a South Park kind of <laughs> approach, you know, just absolute cynicism across the board. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with Shakespeare's touch to it, um, that that kind of makes it. I don't know. There's something there. Yeah, and it's completely unlike any other play. Um, it it deserves the, the the appellation of a problem play. Yeah. In the similar way that Winter's Tale and Cymbeline get the title, or even The Tempest to a certain extent. Um, Tempest it, is much happier and a l- sure, less but jaded. It, but, but it's yeah. still problematic in the sense that it, it doesn't fit the stereotypes. And I think this is Shakespeare playing with that a little bit. This it's is, hard. It's yeah. hard to to pin down, obviously, because we have no idea what Shakespeare was thinking. But I I really do like the idea of of thinking about um, his audience, who he was writing for. I think that does help to frame a conversation about what he might have been doing, and even if it is just for himself, if this is just him, like I said, writing his yeah. his vanity piece, um, it's. Uh, it's still very telling that that he chooses to completely go off the rails. It's like I honestly can't even think of a of a a modern <laughs> analogy? equivalent analogy. It's yeah. like can you can you think of a director or a writer who has completely done something totally different for the sh- for shits and giggles just for the hell of it because they wanted to? Like I, mean, I was I was yeah. gonna think of of. Yodorovsky's Dune, but he was batshit crazy yeah. for all oh, of his yeah, stuff, right? His stuff. Same um, with Lynch, right? Like, yeah. But I mean, it would it would be like if Quentin Tarantino directed Titanic. No, it would be like if Quentin fun. Tarantino directed a, like an actual Lynch movie as opposed to a knockoff. Like if he did actually, if Quentin Tarantino had done uh, Inland Empire, which is like not at all a Tarantino movie, even though there are elements of it that could be considered Tarantino esque as. Because, again, Tarantino rips off Lynch. Like, if it was, like, a major mainstream director going off and doing a weird art house movie that's three and a half hours long and doesn't make any sense and is completely disjointed and postmodern, there's no, there's no, the answer like to that is, I like, I can't think of anything. No, I can't think of anything like that either. I think maybe, unless Spielberg directed something under a pen name. <laughs> Which I think we know about. I there's there's nothing like that that comes to mind. Granted, you and I may, we're not film buffs. We might not have no. So if you if you know of something that matches what we're trying to say, let us know. But even like an author like like I'm trying to think of like a J.K. Rowling or, or something like that who's like a, a very popular populist writer going and doing okay. something like in the literary and and, and Rice writing um, Sleeping Beauty erotica. Which kind, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, they're both kind of There's genre. Re- there is, there There's really not. isn't a, an equivalent. It's like, it's uh. somebody just, like, I really do see this as Shakespeare flexing his his creative muscle and trying mm. to do something. I, I have a lot more muscle, respect yeah. for the play than I did going into it. I'm mm-hmm. sure I've, I was quite vocal about this, maybe even on the last episode, where I groaned <laughs> a little bit when yeah. I was like, oh, I shit, we have to read Trolls and Cressida. Yeah. But it's... It's certainly not the. It's not a terrible play. It's a difficult play. It's a yeah. challenging play it's to a long get into. Play. It's a long play. Um, it's confusing, and and the the characters aren't easy to to like or get into. But I really appreciate what I think Shakespeare <laughs> is trying think to he's do. Saying, yeah, what I think is happening here. I appreciate that artistically, right? 
Yeah. And that I think is is uh, is enough for me. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So our ancient bickerings for today, I think is, uh, might get, I, I know what I'm going to say. Okay. Um, I'll ask the question then. No, I don't. So I'll ask the question and you can answer it first, yeah. Lindsay. Can this play be salvaged or does it even need salvaging at this point? Uh, I think yes to both. Okay. Um, I think it can be salvaged with a tub thumping esque uh, tagline. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only slightly joking. <laughs> um, do I, can it be salvaged? Yes, I think it can be. I don't think it's, I think you would have to have quite a visionary director who isn't going to literally try and stage a battle or literally going to try and stage um, these long-winded talks. I think it would have to be, um, you would have to have a director who is willing to lean into a really postmodern reading of it. And that might even mean dismantling the way the scenes are written and presenting them out of time or or out of order or something like that in order to highlight what I think the essential point of this is, which is to comment on value. Well, to to highlight, comment on, underscore, underline, whatever the um, the changeability and immutability of everything <laughs> yeah of everything right? human like yeah. Yeah. like nothing in this play is constant nothing in this play holds still long enough to be defined yeah it's it's definable in the moment and i think that if you if you really leaned into that if you really said we're going to disjoint this play entirely then the that theme would come to the fore and i yeah. think that is what makes it a postmodern play yeah and then, and then allowing an audience to come at it the way that the postmoderns and, and mm-hmm. deconstructionists wanted you to, right? Yeah. To say, we're going to, you know, you, you bring yourself to the play and that's how it makes sense, yeah. right? Was yeah. that deconstruction? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that whatever. I have an English degree. <laughs> um, <laughs> philosophy minor. <laughs> uh, it's, um, I think that would be, it would be a totally different kind of play. You, fuck, you could even do it like uh, interpretive dance. Like it <laughs> could there there could be ways to make this work to 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 salvage it. Does it deserve to be salvaged? I think so. I think I think it's something that that wasn't your question. I think no, that's close. Yeah, was it? Yeah. Um, I think it does deserve to be to be salvaged. I think for two reasons. I think it's it's a worthwhile ancient story from the the annals of our civilization and i think that's uh worth talking about and worth keeping up with for the same reason that i think we should all read the iliad and we should all read virgil and and ovid and all that but um but it's it's also i think an a, a pretty underrated play by shakespeare and i think if you look at it the way that I don't know. I'm I'm looking at it through fresh eyes now, and I think that that more people could do that. It would be 
I think it'd be worthwhile. I think that's reason enough to try is my point. Okay. That's fair. Um, I would I'm say, wrong though. <laughs> uh, I, you I love saying that. So. <laughs> I do, but only on here. Most of the time, Lindsay, I agree with you hundred percent. That's why Aww. we're good. That's why we're a good partnership. Pound it. <laughs> because you agree with me. No, because we agree generally. Oh, okay. And I'd say we mostly agree on this one as well. Um, <laughs> I agree. Obviously, like I wrote a freaking screenplay for it. I think it's. I think there is again something to this. Oh, so this isn't ancient bickering. No, it's I know. Ancient it agreements. Was, it's ancient agreements this time. Because uh, <laughs> I, I think there is something there, and I think I th- I really like your, like you you sold me on this idea of like a deconstructed <laughs> play because um, it does really fit. It is this thing that wants to uh, highlight how quick and fickle humans are in their everything yeah and everything and how quickly they change their mind and how um they make self-interested judgments based not on connections to other people or love or any high ideals of truth or anything like that it's self uh preservation at the end of the day everyone's kind of cressida i think i think cressida we didn't actually wind up talking about just her character because she was weaved into all the themes but i think her character i think you can redeem this play significantly if you uh focus on her character alone because she is the one who goes through this journey of uh being highly valued to being not valued at all and i think if you really beef up her fear and anxieties when she's traded to the grecian clamp again the bbc production had her cracking jokes with the the grecians as they're pawing at her and yeah, wanting to kiss and, her yeah, as she kissing comes her into stuff. the greek camp and it's it's rapey but <laughs> it's super rapey and, and and that i mean i think you could play that up to be like no they they literally pass her around and maybe yeah. those kisses are much more aggressive than than were shown on the bbc version right yeah. like i think i think a director could even just take the text as it is now Mm -hmm. and really work with it to really highlight her uh metamorphosis to go back to it again uh through this through these transitory periods like the the bbc production was not good at that because it had her just wailing when she gets traded um it made her seem really weak and then all of a sudden 10 minutes later she's cracking jokes and stuff Okay, this is going to turn into ancient bickerings Why? now because I don't agree with that. I think what you're saying, I, I I think that's the best part about Cresta's character is that she's just like all the other characters. She has yeah, no yeah, yeah. no one thing that, that defines her. And, and if you change her and make her like more like Boccaccio's version or mm-hmm. more like Chaucer's version of Cressida, then it's not the same play anymore. She has to be inconstant. She has to be as changeable as everybody else because that's the essentialist thing about this but okay, about this play. I, I agree and I think that would that would work for if you're gonna do a reimagining of the story and based on Shakespeare's identification and working with the ideas. Yeah. I think for this and I guess it would I guess it's fine for if you're just straight up staging this play too. But I feel like to salvage this play um, for a modern audience, you need someone to root for. And I feel like Cresta is the most worthy candidate within the thing. And it's a good counterpoint to Troilus's narcissism in a, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, but it's, then it's, then you're watering down the play. Yeah. Yeah, I think you kind of so, need to water so, this down. So what you're saying is that the only way to salvage this play for a modern audience is to dumb it down and make it less for, difficult okay, for okay, the audience okay we're talking about audience now i'd say this is going to be for uh, a broad audience like my screenplay was or are we talking about the art house intelligentsia well 
liberal coastal elite, Lindsay. Which one are you Jesus talking about? Christ, <laughs> this got attacked real fast, didn't it? Well, I don't think. You don't think it's worth changing the whole no, structure? No, I think yeah. I think the story is what the story is, and you produce what the story is, okay. and okay. the audience will find it. That's I don't fine. think you should tailor a story to a specific audience. Like I think Shakespeare that's Okay, that's, that <laughs> is a stuff. very fair point. <laughs> I will grant that. I'm just saying that I think... I think trying to to make it appeal to the lowest common denominator in no it's not that's not me being elitist I'm saying when you try to make it appeal to everyone it appeals less Less to to everyone everyone. yes yes and that's where I think film has gone wrong these days that's where I think pop culture has gone wrong these days I think there's there and and I and I I say this knowing full well that Gen Z has has made being nerdy cool again, and I'm very grateful to them for that because they they have their their niche ideas and and likes and dislikes, and mm-hmm. they won't let anybody pry them out of my cold dead hands. They say on TikTok, but it's when when you when you say that the story has to be palatable to men ages 18 to 35 and um, underaged girls and uh, which was a, a weird way of putting that teenage girls maybe <laughs> yeah. we should say yeah um, and it also has to uh, fit a summer blockbuster market and it has to be yes, um, yes, yes. like it yeah. just you can't be everything yes. to everyone no that's so fair be true to your ironically be true to yourself <laughs> To thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. That's fair. That's fair. I I agree. I think, okay, you win this this time. It's all you. you. Um, Because, yeah, when I I wrote mine, I was very much writing it as like a summer blockbuster. So I I took the steps to, but with like a hint of the cynicism of Shakespeare. But but this was also around the time that the film Troy came out. And so there was was a precedent for a big blockbuster. Tristan and Isolde even had come out. Oh my God, I'd forgotten about that. Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Was the guy from the guy? I'm picturing Heath Le- Heath Ledger. No, I'm picturing the guy from uh, Freaks and Geeks. Was he was James it, Franco? Was it James Franco? No, was it? I don't think so. I'm looking this up, but I think it was. I love that you were like the guy from Freaks and Geeks. Like James Franco has been in so many other things. Yeah, and you're like the guy be, from Freaks and he'll Geeks. He'll always be, you know, what's his name in Freaks and Geeks? <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Oh my God! It's James Franco. Yes, I got it right. Who's the lady? Sophia Miles. Okay. Henry Cavill is in that movie. I may have to rewatch it. Oh Jesus Christ! Anyway, (laughs) uh, yeah, no, I I, that was the milieu I was working with, but I think you're right, Lindsay. By and large, Shakespeare's version is a very unique take on the uh, sword and sandal genre. And I would say that was what it was called at the time. And uh, really, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that changing it would would do a disservice to Shakespeare. You're right. You're right. Cool. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. What's next, Lindsay? 
well, obviously, in two weeks' time um, from the day we are recording this, uh, we will be releasing our lesser-known Shakespearean plays episode, mm-hmm. um, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, having said that, we haven't read half of the lesser-known Shakespeare plays. <laughs> so it might as be a yet. little difficult. To well, but that. I think I think there there are some some definite through lines, and and we can probably uh, talk to the experience of of that having not read them yeah why have we not read them yeah. but also what do they have in common i think is going to be the biggest thing what why do certain plays rise above the others yeah i think, I think that's going to be the, the yeah biggest exactly question. it might be more about the ones that aren't lesser known more than even the ones that are um and then after that it's measure for measure um yeah which again one of the ones we've Another, never read yeah and and one that is, is measure for measure a little bit harder to i think we're starting to get into a little bit more of the complicated yeah. uh the complex plays that have a little bit more um well definitely more toothiness to them they have more to bite into i guess there's more to talk about <laughs> uh so yeah measure for measure is going to be um a good one i have no idea what it's about this is going to be yeah. a journey it'll be a new it'll be a fresh one for us uh Two thumbs up, summer blockbuster. What what is Peter Travers always saying? Does he still work for Rolling Stone? I don't know who you're talking about right now. I'm trying to I'm trying to like come up with like what would be on the back of the summer blockbuster box when you go to Blockbuster. You get for measure by measure for for our episode on (laughs) measure for measure. Not much. And an action packed thrill ride. Yeah, nonstop action packed. Yeah, there. Yes, that's the phrase. So that's what that's what measure for measure is going to be. Our episode on it. Not the play. Maybe the play. I don't know. I haven't read it. Why am I the only one who ever finishes off these episodes by sounding like an idiot? That's a good question. You should ask yourself. (laughs) You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Bixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.